Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Welcome back to RUF. Glad you all are here tonight. Um, If you've been with us, we've been going through the book of John uh, this quarter, and we're getting to this passage, these next couple of chapters, um, starting with chapter 13, are called the Upper Room Discourse. And what that refers to is this is Jesus' last moment before his arrest, um, the day before his crucifixion, uh, this last meal he has with his 12 best friends. And he's talking to them about what's about to unfold, and he's preparing them um, for kind of the coming moments in their life and and kind of the coming moments in the life of the church. Um, So as we consider that, let's pray first that God would teach us, and then we'll consider what Jesus is teaching us about the Holy Spirit. Father God, we need you to be with us when we open your word. We need you to soften our hearts to what you have to say uh, and to enlighten our imaginations. Um, so pray now as we come that we would hear you, uh, that you would teach us your wisdom, and we wouldn't just know it in our minds, but you would press it into our hearts and begin to change us uh, and give us life. So come Holy Spirit, we need you to work. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so kind of as we jump into this issue of the Holy Spirit, I kind of thought by way of illustration, one way to kind of depict how we relate to this idea is I am, I'm going to lose a lot of y'all's respect tonight, Um, I am computer illiterate, and not just kind of like, I kind of don't know what I'm doing. I have one tool for fixing my computer when it doesn't work. And I don't know, I don't even understand the tool I use, but when the computer freezes, somehow, I have a MacBook Air, I've had some version of a MacBook for like a decade now, I go to the spotlight thing in the top right hand corner, And I type in activity monitor because I don't know where the activity monitor is, let alone what it is. So I type it in and it allows me to open that app because I don't know where it is. And when I open it, I know that I can just close a bunch of things. Do you all know what I'm talking about? You just hit quit process until things start working again. That's it. That's my one tool. That's the extent of my how to fix your computer knowledge. Um, I say that because when you open that activity monitor, there's like a list of like hundreds of things running. You know what I'm talking about? They're like kernels and all this kind of stuff and these words I don't understand. And, and I'm like, man, all these things, I like, I just have like Chrome and Word and iMessage open. But this thing says I have like 150 things open. And I don't know if they're supposed to be open or not. And I have no idea what they're doing, right? But they're all there and they're all working. That's my illustration for the Holy Spirit. (laughs) We're like, it's there, I think, and it's working, but I don't understand it at all. If you ask me to identify it or define it, but I know it's like a thing somewhere operating in the background, right? And, uh, and, And in some ways, tonight is really, who is the Holy Spirit? What does He do? How do I know He's there? Um... And if you're a non-Christian, you kind of need to know this, that if, if you're coming to faith in Jesus, um, it invites all kinds of business into your life. God is going to 
pop the hood and he's just going to jack with everything inside of you. And in some ways, on my computer too, in the upper right hand, that top bar, there's like tons of icons on that top bar and I have no idea what they are or how they got there. You know, I don't, I literally am clueless. I'm like, I don't know what this means, but there's like 12 of them. And in some ways, if you're kind of like, if, if you're skeptical and you're here and you're like, I'm coming into this Christian thing, you kind of need to know, it's kind of like that. You're going to look up at your computer and realize like, wait, how did all these things get here? I didn't feel like that was part of the bargain, right? And those things, they're there. I don't know how they got there, but I feel like I shouldn't get rid of them, and now they're in my life. So, if you're here and you're like, I don't know what I think about Christianity, but I kind of like Jesus, and I kind of like want to get close to Him and have a relationship with Him, just so you know, you're downloading a bunch of other software that you won't understand that will be running on your computer now. And we'll try to understand a little bit of that tonight. Does that make sense? Yes? No? Maybe? Okay. We'll get into like, tonight's kind of fun. We do a little bit more theology tonight. Um... Uh, but tonight is, what is the Holy, who is the Holy Spirit and what does He do? How do we know He's there? And in some ways, this actually answers really important questions, which is, does God help us now? What does that look like? What is, it, is He active in my life now? Um, how, how do we know this isn't just simply, the Bible's not just inspirational stories that I just kind of work into my life to inspire me, right? Or is God actually with me? Um, But not only that, how can I know for sure that He's at work in my life? What is the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in me? And um, as we've gone through John, and really as you read Scripture, the more you're around Jesus' words, you see that that Christianity is not just an insurance policy. It's far from that. And that Jesus' goal in your life is to change you. not to cultivate a little part of your goal for well-roundedness, like, right, I want to develop myself academically and intellectually uh, and in work and in relationships, but also spiritually. Don't come to Jesus if you want Him to just kind of be part of your spiritual well-roundedness goal because He wants to change you into a wholly different kind of person so that you're a different kind of worker and you're a different kind of thinker and you're a different kind of friend and that He actually invades what He's doing in your life, invades all those fears. So this is not, Jesus is not interested in being an aspect of your life. He's interested in being your life. Um, and, and in some ways, there, there's an old myth about Augustine. Augustine is uh, this theologian from the 4th century you might be familiar with his confessions. He wrote this kind of beautiful story of his own conversion, and, uh, and it has a lot of beautiful theology woven through it. He's probably the most important theologian of the first thousand years of the church. But um, his life before he was a Christian, before he came to faith, was very wild, and he chronicles that. Um, and there's a story told, uh, kind of a myth, we don't know if it's true or not, but there's a story told about when he was walking through the street in Milan that one of the prostitutes he used to frequent screamed at him, Augustine, Augustine. And he didn't turn around. And she finally said, Augustine, it is I. And he turned around and he said, yes, but it's no longer I. And his point being that God is after our hearts and Jesus is after our hearts. He is after making us a wholly different kind of person. And the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is actually vital for understanding what that means. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to do a quick, um, not nearly in-depth enough kind of look at what the Trinity is. We need to talk about that. And then two aspects of the Holy Spirit's work. He does far more than these two things, but the two aspects that Jesus addresses in these chapters, chapters kind of 14 through 17 in John are some of the most extended discourse on the Holy Spirit. So quick lesson on the Trinity, real quickly. One thing all Christians throughout all of history at all times and in all traditions, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant, those are the three 
broad historic traditions, all of them have said that the thing that sits at the heart of the Christian faith is the Trinitarian nature of God. Uh, ink has been spilt over millions of pages and over thousands of years to explain what it means that God is one and God is three persons. That He's one in substance, but He's tri-personal. We cannot explain that tonight. Uh, the church has been explaining for 2,000 years and there's still mystery there. But I want to make two brief points about the Trinitarian nature of God and then we'll go on and talk about the Holy Spirit. From the very beginning of the Bible, from the opening chapter... The Bible establishes that God Himself is a community by Himself. Because at the very beginning, when God made man, He said, Let us, plural, make man in our image. And yet, at the same time, the the Bible goes to great lengths to establish that God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4 is called the Shema. If there was a creedal statement of an Old Testament Jew, what do you believe? They would quote Deuteronomy 6.4, and it begins, the Lord your God is one. That was their creedal statement. So the Bible, from the Old Testament on, is constantly reiterating that God is a, tr- is a community in and of Himself, He is a plurality, and He is one. Now, one implication of that if we're made in His image, is that we're actually most fully human and we experience life as God intended it in a full manner when we're in flourishing relationships. Connected to one another and connected to God Himself. In chapter 14, verse 20, it says, You will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. This, all of this language of these chapters, chapters 14 through 17, are about connection that we were made for relationship. Now, at the first RUF of the quarter, many of y'all are here, I'll remind you of the first thing I said. This is for Christians and for non-Christians alike. These are two, two kind of observations about two groups of people that exist in the world. And, and I said, you're irresponsibly attending Stanford if you're not constantly dealing with the fact that these two groups exist, whether or not you're a Christian. And what I mean by that is this. There are educated, high-achieving, wealthy people who are unhappy. You have to deal with that reality if you're going to Stanford. If you pretend those people don't exist, high-achieving, educated, wealthy people who are unhappy, you're an irresponsible student at Stanford. Whether or not you're a Christian, that sounds mean. It's just true. You need to deal with that. The second class of individuals, everybody kind of smirking like, Britain's kind of a jerk, and some people are like, Britain's kind of a jerk. But <laughs> you're both thinking the same thought, but some of y'all kind of like me, and some of y'all kind of don't now. But <laughs> I just saw the faces. It was a little scary. But um, the second class of individuals are these, people who don't have much money and don't have much education and haven't achieved much and are happy. And if you're not asking yourself, how come these people also exist, you're also irresponsibly actually educating yourself at Stanford. And the reason I bring those up is because I actually do think, and I think what the Bible will tell you, but I actually also think your life experience will bear out, is that maybe the key is not education to happiness, is not education and achievement and wealth, but one of the keys is being connected in flourishing relationships. And actually from the very beginning of Scripture, we are learning that we are made and we experience full life when we are connected in a web of mature and flourishing relationships. Both to peers, but also to people younger than us and to people older than us and to God Himself. So that God is Trinitarian, 
And we are made in His image means that we are most fully alive when we are in healthy and ordered relationships. You actually experience this reality because you know that actually getting an F for a semester does a lot less damage to you as a person than breaking up with someone. The breaking up hangs, hangs with you, doesn't it? And it defines you for years in a lot of ways. You kind of can't fully sweep it away. You can fail a class, hangs with you for a little while. But right, broken relationship instead of failed achievement... The broken relationship actually gets at you in a deeper way, damages you in a deeper way, right? Losing a job versus divorce. Divorce wrecks generations and communities. Losing a job inconveniences you usually for a season. Relationships are more fundamental. God is a community of Himself. To be made in His image means we're made for relationship. That's the first point about the Trinity. The second point about the Trinity is this. A way to think about how we then relate to the Trinity. What is our relationship to the members of the Trinity? In 14.31, Jesus actually reiterates a point He's been making all throughout the Gospel of John. He says, what I do is I do what the Father's commanded me. He's actually said things like this all along in chapter 8. I came not on my own accord, but as the Father sent me. Chapter 10, I'm doing the works of the Father. Chapter 12, whoever believes in me, believes in the one who sent me. And what Jesus is saying is, this is in in theological speak, this is called the economy of the Trinity. What Jesus is saying is, I am doing the work of redemption that the Father has sent me to do. And so the way theologians have talked about the, uh, how the members of the Trinity relate to each other and relate to us in the work of redemption is this, that the Father plans and ordains salvation and the Son accomplishes it. Right? He's the, the Father is the author, in some sense, writing the story, and the Son is the main character that executes the story. Jesus accomplishes salvation. He goes to the, Christ, the cross and He pays the price for our sin. He rises again and conquers death so that those in Him by faith have full life. And His work accomplishes salvation. But then we get to the Holy Spirit. And what does He do? That's what the rest of tonight's about. And the way to think about the Holy Spirit is He applies salvation. The Father ordains or plans it. The Son uh, accomplishes it. And the Holy Spirit applies it. And what that means is the thing that keeps the gospel... Right, the promises of God, the story of Jesus, from simply being letters on a page or puffs of breath coming off our lips, but being something that actually goes down into our heart and gives us faith and reorients us and reorders our entire life from the center of who we are and then working itself out into our lives. Right Into what the Bible calls obedience. In, in chapter 14, three different times, Jesus says obedience is... Uh, If you love me, you'll obey. If you love me, you'll obey. If you love me, you'll keep my word. And obedience is the fruit of love. And that's really important to remember. It's It's the fruit of love. It's not the cause of love. And this is why the Christian life is called the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Because the fruit is the end process, uh, the end of a process, right? Of producing something beautiful. But you can't staple fruit on insincerely. And we try to do that a lot, and that's usually when we kind of become nasty religious people who are judgmental. We act nice and religious, but our heart is actually hard towards others and towards Jesus. But the Spirit's work actually begins underground and at the root of things, right? The Holy Spirit starts in there in His work of applying salvation in our lives. So I want to talk about two things He does that Jesus teaches He does in this passage. And those two things are He convicts us and He guides us. And you heard those words... 
as Sarah read them. I'll read uh, chapter verses 8 through 11 really quickly again. Um, when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe Me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer. And concerning judgment because the rule of this world is judged. What does it mean that the Holy Spirit comes and convicts us? Uh, it means this, that our hearts, if Jesus is in the business of changing us, and changing us in a deep way, from like going into our heart and doing business with our fundamental allegiances and loyalties and loves, that our heart actually can't change until we see it for what it is. Until we actually understand ourselves, until we get past all of the defense mechanisms that we've set up to even trick ourselves, right? And the distorted interpretations and justifications we have for why it is the way it is, or why the things I do are not actually a representation of who I am in my deepest part. What the Holy Spirit does is cuts through and shows you what's in there. So what does it mean that He convicts us? We'll go through these. Convict concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It says He'll convict the world concerning sin because they don't believe in Me. From Genesis 3 on, sin is viewed not simply as misbehaving. It's not simply doing bad things. Sin as its heart is mistrust of God. That's Eve in the garden. This is the first moment. I don't trust God on this rule about this fruit, regardless of what you think about the fruit and the tree and all that other kind of stuff. Fundamentally what happened in Eve's heart was, I don't trust what God says about this. I trust the serpent and I trust my own logic. Now think about this. What happens in relationships once you stop trusting another person? Once one person says, I don't trust you. Because when you say to someone else, I don't trust you, you're actually pronouncing judgment on their character. Right? And the relationship disintegrates. And the joy of friendship and intimacy at best can only be mimicked from that moment on. Sin is saying, God, I don't trust you. And we can't understand Jesus and we actually can't find joy in His redeeming love until we actually see what He's redeeming us from, until we actually see into our heart and see that what drives us is this uncontested, self-trusting, self-loving, self-protecting, self-obsession. And anytime God's Word contradicts our heart posture, right? God's like, hey, I'm kind of into sobriety. And we're like, I'm not sure, God, that's a great idea. He's like, no, trust me, I made wine. I actually like it, command you to drink it on certain occasions. But sobriety is like a cool thing that leads to flourishing. We're like, I don't trust you, right? <laughs> hey, I want you to rest from work, God says, right? You're making your identity. It, it can't do that. The reason you're freaking out is actually because you work too much, and not because you don't work enough, so let me be your identity, not your work, and you'll be happy. God's like, hey, sex really flourishes in an amazing way inside of the covenant of marriage. I know you want it badly. You know how I know? Because I made it awesome. Right? This is all from the Bible. Right? This is the Britain translation of Song of Solomon. <laughs> but outside of marriage, it hardens your ability to be human, and it hollows you out when you go on the internet and get in bed with people that you're not in covenant with. Trust me, God says. Right? Hey, unforgiveness is killing you. You think it won't. It's killing you. You should try forgiveness. And everything, every time God says something and we move in opposite direction of that, we're actually saying, God, 
I don't trust you. You either don't know what you're talking about or you're lying to me. Anytime we act in opposition to His Word, that's what we're saying. That's the implicit judgment we're making. I like you, but I don't trust you. And here's what we want to do. We want to water down the implications of what disobedient means. We want to water down the implications of what our disobedience means about what we really think about God. Like, no, it doesn't mean that about God. Yes, it does. When we're like, hey God, I kind of think you're wrong in this. We're saying, we either don't think you're that bright, or actually you're a mean person and have ill will towards me. Every act of disobedience, every feeling of disobedience is passing that judgment on God. And when you start to see that and you start to go, wow, my comfort with my ability to just simply justify lying means that my heart really thinks that God's an idiot when He's talking about how important it is to tell the truth. And when you experience the weight of that realization that my disobedience actually mocks and belittles the one who made me, when you start to feel the weight of that, that's the Holy Spirit. When we stop justifying and we stop believing our own defenses and we just let what disobedience means mean it. Of like, wow, I think God's an idiot. That's really what I think. I don't trust Him. I don't think He's good. The weight of that realization when it's heavy on you, that's the Holy Spirit. That's how you know He's at work in your life. What does it mean that He convicts us? He doesn't just convict us of sin. He convicts us of righteousness. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. What does this mean? The way one pastor said it is the difference between a religious person and a Christian is that a religious person repents of their sin, right? They grieve their sin and turn toward Jesus. And a Christian repents of their sin and their good works. What does that mean that we're convicted of our righteousness? It means this. That you start to look at all the nice things about you, all the all everybody has a list of at least eyes, right? That you differentiate yourself from other people that you think you're better than, you have an at least I, at least I don't do this, or at least I do do this, at least I don't have this, or at least I do have this. It means you actually take all of those and you realize, I think I think that I think I'm better than people because of these things. Because of these achievements, because of my moral stance, my politics, because I go to bed early, because I eat clean, whatever it is. It's our self-produced righteousness. Oh, people, on the eating clean thing, Will's laughing. (laughs) Come hang out in the CrossFit community, man. It's tough. (laughs) Will's not coming back to RUF. But uh, (laughs) maybe it was the go to bed early. Was it that or the food thing? I don't know. Okay. We'll, we'll meet later. Um, right? But it's our, our self-produced righteousness that gives us a sense of superiority. And what it does is it makes us at the very least patronizing towards people we think they're better than. But more likely, we're often secretly also judgmental and nasty towards the people that we outperform. Right? Whether it's in the realm of school, morality, religion, tolerance, whatever it is. And Jesus convicts us of our self-righteousness. The Holy Spirit does. That it also separates us from God. This is what the prophet Isaiah says, that our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. They are not good enough to go to God with. And only Jesus can go to the Father on our behalf because His righteousness is not stuffy, arrogant, insecure kind. It's the righteousness born out of love and not out of fear. And what we want to say is, but I'm a good person. 
God, I do have some good things about me. Why can't God kind of love and appreciate the good things about me? And when we say that, we, I, I talked about this with some of y'all earlier this week. When we say that, we're divorcing our heart from our actions again. And I used this example earlier um, this week. If I abandon my most important relationships, right, my wife and my children, let's say I abandon those relationships to serve orphans in a third world country, am I a good person? No. The answer is no. You should know that. I hope you know that. We'll cover that in premarital counseling if you all get engaged. <laughs> right? Here's my point. You can't separate the idea of being good from love in your fundamental relationships. But that's actually what we do when we say, I don't love Jesus, but I am good. When the Holy Spirit comes along and we begin to sense, oh, my need to justify myself and create my own sense of self-righteousness, of moral behavior and achievement and social savvy, it's nonsense. It is shot through with arrogance and fear and judgmentalism and distrust of God and pride. The only righteousness that God accepts is Jesus, His righteousness, because it's done with a pure heart. And Jesus goes to be our righteousness before God. The Holy Spirit humbles us from thinking, I'm great and acceptable because of my good things. He convicts us of our righteousness. And lastly, He convicts us of our judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. When Jesus died, it seemed like the whole Christian enterprise should have been over. And it should have been. Had He stayed in the grave, we wouldn't be talking here today. The church would have never existed. It's impossible to imagine how radically different history would have been. But He rose, and His death and His resurrection are the validation and the power of His kingly claims on creation and on us. And it's His judgment on everyone who opposes Him that Jesus is the King of creation. And He's the King of life. And the Holy Spirit brings home the truth that all other worldly judgments are actually evaluated and judged in light of the crucified and risen Lord. The Holy Spirit convicts. Convicts us concerning sin, concerning righteousness, concerning judgment. Now why is this important? And this is... This is vitally important. In some ways, maybe the most important application here is for us to stop hardening our hearts from the process of conviction. And this is why. Conviction, being convicted of these things is important. And this is an illustration from Tim Keller. If someone offers you help and you don't think you need it, you feel insulted. If someone offers you help and you think you need a little bit, then you think they're pretty nice. But if someone offers you help and you're desperate for it, and you would die without it, that person becomes your Savior. Apart from the Holy Spirit's work of conviction, our hearts can never richly and deeply explode in praise and obedience to Jesus for how He has loved us. The goal of the Holy Spirit is to get you to love Jesus more than anything in the world. Literally. I mean the word literally the way it's traditionally used. (laughs) The goal of the Holy Spirit is to get you to love Jesus more than anything in the world. And that can't happen until you begin to see that He loved you more than anything in the world. And John says in his letter, This is love, not that we loved Him, but that He first loved us. That even when there was a deep and sneaky and violent opposition to Him at the center of our being, 
He still forgives you in a deeply and costly and permanent way. This is His work. When it first comes into our life, we call it conversion. Right? Your heart begins to turn towards a new love. But it's also the ongoing work of the Spirit in the lives of Christians, and it's called renewal. A constant turning, right? Spirit convicts us, and then secondly, He guides us. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you things that are come. Verse 14, He will glorify Me, this is Jesus speaking, He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. What does it mean that the Holy Spirit is going to guide us? And if you're around Christian circles for a while, you'll recognize there's a lot of confusion about what that means. Because a lot of times we think, does that mean He's going to point us to the person we should date, whether or not we should break up with them? Uh, will He tell me kind of what to major in, what classes I should take, what I should do for spring break, which roommate I should choose, the job I should choose? Does the Holy Spirit mean that He makes decisions for us in life that regard simple choices between amoral options, options that have no moral implication? And the answer is, no, absolutely not. That's crazy. I recognize that might trouble some of you, and we can have a longer conversation about it later. But if you want to know, in the Bible, well, doesn't in the Bible, does He ever tell anybody to marry somebody? Yes, He does. When their job is either to constitute the nation of Israel, or to birth the Savior of the world. So if you think God is calling you to one of those two things, yes, He might be talking to you about who you're supposed to marry. Uh, The only time He tells people what job they should have is if they're going to be a prophet, which means they're the mouthpiece of God to the world, a priest, which means they mediate God's presence to the world, or a king, they govern on God's behalf in the world. So, if you think God is telling you what job you should have, then maybe you should be a prophet, priest, or king, and we can talk about that. But other than that, the Holy Spirit is not in the business of making those kind of decisions for you. Jesus is telling us two things central to understanding how the Holy Spirit guides us. That the Spirit speaks what the Father and Son have spoken, and He speaks about Jesus. In other words, His guidance is grounded in Scripture, and it's always about Jesus. He guides us through the Word of God, and He guides our hearts toward and into Jesus. So if you want to know, is it the Holy Spirit? The question is, is it it confirming what Scripture says, and is it about Jesus? And before I kind of get into that a little bit further, what that means, I want to remark briefly about the confusion of guidance because you might feel like these decisions though are really important, right? Whether or not uh, I go somewhere for spring break or go abroad next quarter, these decisions are really important and doesn't God want me to be happy? And you see our hearts get revealed right there. We start thinking, these decisions are really important. If God loves me, He would want me to be happy so He would give me guidance on these decisions And our hearts are revealed right there. As if believing that if God would tell me how to acquire all my dreams in life, I'll be happy. And that again also betrays the very first thing I said in RUF this quarter. Because what we've been saying is, "Mm, happiness is not guaranteed if you achieve and acquire all the circumstances you want in life. Not biblical happiness, which is called blessedness. Blessedness is the result not of getting what you want, right? But being meaningfully connected and also becoming the right sort of person. 
And God actually cares more about our happiness than we understand. And His guidance is not involved in the mundane, like what do I study or where do I move kind of questions. He's involved in something deeper, making you the kind of person who's resilient and who's joyful and who's kind and who's self-sacrificing and who's faithful and humble and loving, regardless of the circumstances you find yourself in. You might choose to go abroad and it might be terrible. Right? But you become joyful and resilient and kind because you know the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of God's love for you in Jesus. Happiness that's contingent on achieving external circumstances is a path to distress and anxiety and insecurity and becoming less human. But blessedness that's produced internally because the character of Christ and the love of Christ and the confidence of God's love for you That's a whole different order of happiness. And guess what? You can have it in any circumstance. Right? Do you want a $100 million valuation of your startup or the sure knowledge of God's love? I can tell you which one will make you happy. Right? Do you want the house in Tahoe and the house in Atherton or the forgiveness of sins? Do you want... The perfect, like, whatever, 10 pounds less body, perfect CrossFit body, or do you want resurrection life? That one's a little bit closer, but we're still going (laughs) with resurrection. But this brings us back to why the Spirit's guidance is into the truth of Scripture and about Jesus. Because this is God's story of creation. It's the story of a world that's made beautiful for the sake of beauty. Because beauty is actually good in, in and of itself. And God made man to be the caretaker and to enjoy the world and for us to enjoy each other and for us to enjoy union and love with God. But we severed our relationship with Him. And the story of Scripture is the story of God's determined and patient and unstoppable plan to make all things new again. To actually restore us to Himself by our Redeemer and by our Rescuer. On the, actually, on the first Easter Sunday... When Jesus rose, the very first people who met him, the resurrected Jesus, were told about this encounter in Luke 24. And they're walking on the road and they're discussing the events of the previous three days because they've shaken Jerusalem. And Jesus says, what are y'all talking about? And they said, we're talking about all this thing just happened. This guy got arrested and he died and things were supposed to change. And then Jesus says this, and uh, Luke says this in 20, Luke 24 verse 27. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament... Jesus interpreted all of Scripture, the things concerning Himself. The story of the Bible, from beginning to end, is the story of a Redeemer. The one who loved us, the one who forgives sin, the one who restores us to God, restores us to one another, who conquers death and makes all things new. The work of the Holy Spirit's guidance is to guide you and to guide me into all the truth about Jesus. And this is why Jesus says, what He will do, verse 14, is glorify me. Because God actually intensely cares about your happiness and knows it has nothing to do with whether or not you take an art class or an engineering class next quarter, but whether or not your heart experiences the sure knowledge that Jesus, your Redeemer, lives. People call the Holy Spirit the shy member of the Trinity because He doesn't draw attention to Himself. He draws our attention to Jesus. And the way one writer said it is he actually understood the Holy Spirit one night when he passed an old historic church that was lit up by a spotlight. 
because the spotlight brought out the majesty and the beauty of the architecture. The spotlight doesn't draw attention to itself. It drew attention to the building and the Holy Spirit draws our attention to Jesus. Which is why Jesus says the main thing He will do is bear witness about me. So what does that mean? It means that when the law of God is becoming a sweeter vision to you of like, I think this is the lovely life, that's the Holy Spirit. It means when the person and work of Jesus is becoming a bigger deal to you, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. It means when you step back and think, I think my impatience with my roommate or my parent, I think God was really patient with me in the person of Jesus. I think I need to be more patient with Him. That's the Holy Spirit. It means you think, when, when you step back and you decide, you know what, I'm going to rest today. Jesus loves me, and I'm not going to slavishly serve the Stanford workaholism, define yourself by your success cult anymore. I'm actually going to hang out with friends, with family. I'm going to worship. Jesus is my righteousness and not my grades. I can trust He has the best in store for me, even if I end up getting a lower grade because I rest today. When you do that, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the one where you're like, yeah, God's going to have to do that one, right? (laughs) When you love the church... Even in its mess. You think, Jesus loved me in my mess. That's the Holy Spirit. When you say, I think I need to tell someone about what I'm looking at on my computer. That's the Holy Spirit. When you sense and begin to give time and maybe money and maybe friendship to people who don't deserve it in order to alleviate even self-inflicted pain and suffering. Because that's what Jesus did for me. That's the Holy Spirit into Christ-likeness because you're being changed by the truth of what Jesus has done for you. So is the Holy Spirit at work? Yes. He is. And I would say this, don't harden your heart to conviction. Don't be afraid of it. And I think the reason that we're actually most often afraid to that first work of conviction is because actually the main judges, we actually think God is like the other two judges we face all the time. Because we actually grew up facing two judges all the time, and that is ourselves and others. And we are not good judges, and other people are not good judges. And we crush ourselves, and other people crush us. That's why we're afraid of conviction. But neither one of those judges matter in God's courtroom. We're ruthless judges, so of course we're scared of conviction. Let the Holy Spirit show you that God is the judge and He's the justifier that He is a merciful and forgiving judge. That actually the way we flee His wrath and His displeasure is by running to Him. And when you do, that's the Holy Spirit drawing you. Let's pray.